Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Jen Marcocci and Emma Fabricate. For today's wrap-up episode, we're talking about Trump and his COVID behaviour, what's going on with Armenia and Azerbaijan, Indonesia's labour laws in protest, and the Cyprus Papers. Let's get stuck into it. Right in the middle of the US elections, and after the shocking event we call the 2020 presidential debate between Trump and Biden, in Trump fashion, he tweeted that Melanie and himself had contracted COVID-19. First of all, let me say that these news had the biggest diversity in reactions, from some claiming that they were just fake news to others that it was a ploy to prolong the elections. However, it seems that his illness has by no means favoured him in terms of elections, as some speculated. In fact, before the presidential debate, Biden was leading by 6%. But after the debate, in which Trump constantly interrupted Biden and the moderator, and what some journalists have labelled as a bullying performance, Trump's support continued to decrease, in which Biden is now leading by 9.7%. A large part of this outcome was that after revealing that he had contracted COVID-19, instead of using it as an opportunity to create more awareness and support for combating the virus, he outright downplayed it. He even went out of the hospital to go wave at supporters outside the hospital he was taken to, taking off his mask for photos and then repeatedly telling Americans not to, quote-unquote, Let the virus dominate your lives. To make matters worse, he then withdrew from the second presidential debate that was scheduled for October 15th after it was announced that it would be held virtually for for obvious safety reasons. Now, some would have suggested that the virus could have helped him gain sympathy support and also been a turning point if Trump had responded differently. He could have used this opportunity to reframe the undermining narrative he has supported regarding COVID, but he just hasn't. Ten days after his diagnosis, his physician has now given him the all-clear to return to his public duties, confirming that he has completed his treatment. Yeah, this is a bit of a crazy story. What was his treatment plan? So Trump has been on a cocktail mix of a steroid named dexamethasone and experimental medication still in the works. Trump noted this as a cure and that he could have just walked out the following day due to how well he felt. However, some medical experts have suggested that his feeling of well-being could very much just be the drugs masking his symptoms and should not be misread as being a cure. Now, Trump received COVID-19 antibodies before being taken to the hospital and has only been used by 275 patients. Thus, the efficiency and the side effects of this treatment are still unknown and he should be cautious of labelling it as a cure. Trump is frankly an anecdote of the treatment that is still largely understudied. He is also taking dexamethasone, which is a potent steroid that's been around for over 60 years, so it's nothing new. How the steroid works is that it prevents the immune system from fatally overreacting to the virus, but it therefore also slows down the process of healing and getting rid of the virus. So it's not really a cure then? Definitely not. And it's not a risk you want to be taking when there's an ongoing alarming increase of COVID cases in America, affecting over 210,000 people. Again, this is a narrative underplaying the virus and also a stance of privilege from the 24-hour intensive care he could access that the majority of Americans cannot. Even the luxury to leave the hospital to go for a joyride is beyond comprehension to families that were not even allowed to see their dying family members to COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. Talking about battling a virus, I guess we can move to what's going on in Asia, a different kind of battle. 
So Armenia and Azerbaijan are neighbouring countries that have reignited their 32-year struggle over Nagorno-Karabakh, a mountainous territory of 1,500,000 people. For your reference, Armenia borders Turkey and Azerbaijan borders Armenia and the Caspian Sea. Or maybe you should just go look at a map. might be easier. <laughs> the last round of fighting killed over 350 people and may soon encourage world powers to enter the fray. The territory is internationally recognised as being a part of Azerbaijan, but it's claimed and governed by ethnic Armenians. The two sides haven't reached a lasting diplomatic resolution to the dispute since a war that killed at least 30,000 people ended in 1994 ceasefire, leaving open the possibility for a renewed fighting. Wow, how have I never heard of this? So what's the worst case scenario with tensions rising? Yeah, so the worst case scenario proved a reality last week, actually. The former Soviet territories accused each other of unprovoked attacks. On September 27, Armenia said Azerbaijan's military bombed civilian settlements in Nagorno-Karabakh, including the regional capital of Stepanakert. In response, Armenia's defense minister claimed it downed two Azerbaijani helicopters and three drones. Then Azerbaijan's defense minister announced it had launched a counter-offense, in quotations, with tanks, warplanes, artillery missiles, and other drones. Past skirmishes typically lasted just a few days, but this one has continued and intensified. Stefanakert, a city of over 50,000, has experienced heavy artillery fire from Azerbaijan since October 2nd. While Azerbaijan says Armenia has shelled the country's second largest city, Ganja, and shot two missiles at other towns, each assault putting civilians in grave danger. So what are other countries doing about it? Well, not much, actually. Turkey, a NATO member, has only made matters worse. Seeking more influence in the region, it has fully backed its longtime ally Azerbaijan, with which it shares a common ethnic and linguistic heritage with. Observers say Turkey has sent at least a thousand Syrian fighters to aid Azerbaijan and given the country's forces weapons and training. That's not only fanning the flames of war, but also threatening the control and calming influence Russia has had over the conflict. But Russia has a former military alliance with Armenia, also has close ties with Azerbaijan, as they were once both part of the Soviet Union. In previous flare-ups, Russia played a key role in pushing both sides back. Russia has also, along with France and the United States, overseen the battering two-decade diplomatic process between the two sides, as three have called for restraint in the last round of fighting. So what does the future hold? Experts actually worried that Moscow could eventually decide to intervene on behalf of Armenia, a decision that would escalate the situation by putting a US-NATO ally against Russia. And while experts hope for a diplomatic solution to the decades-old conflict, or at least another ceasefire, many fear the fighting will continue until either Armenia deals with Azerbaijan a military defensive blow or Azerbaijan reclaims much or all of Nagorno-Karabakh and its surrounding regions. Statements from both leaders don't provide much hope though. Armenia's Prime Minister Nicole Pashinja said on Tuesday that Nagorno-Karabakh is ready and armed and Armenia is ready to mirror the concessions that Azerbaijan is ready to make. But Azerbaijan's president, Iham Aliyev, doesn't want to make concessions, quoting, 
Azerbaijan has one condition, and that is the liberation of its territories, he said on Sunday. This story is crazy. I swear every week we're talking about like a upcoming World War Three. So let's just hope that they figure out their stuff together. Yeah. So not to add to the bad news, but it's hard to see or hear any other world news when the US elections and Trump's COVID results have overwhelmed the news headlines lately. But that doesn't mean that the world goes on pause, like you just mentioned with your story, yeah. or unimportant events are happening around the world. I bet not many of you have heard that Indonesia have been in the middle of a week-long protest in the capital and about what, you may ask? Controversial labour laws. So the laws passed on Monday, says ABC News, amended 79 previous laws and was intended to improve bureaucratic efficiency as part of the Indonesian government's effort to attract more investments to the country. Wow, that's crazy. What are Indonesians' views on the new law and how did they react? Well, over a thousand demonstrators have taken to the streets, some violently claiming the law undermines workers' rights by reducing severance pay, removing restrictions on manual labour by foreign workers, increasing the use of outsourcing and converting monthly salaries to hourly wages. So pretty much by amending those 79 previous laws, they tried to just shorten the bureaucratic process but take out a bunch of union and labour laws benefits to the working class. So fearful of decreasing job certainty and an already decreasing GDP by over 5%, Indonesians are fearful that the government's enthusiasm to bring foreign investment as key drivers for national economic growth will only actually favour those within those markets or owners, which essentially just undermines the working class. The omnibus law lays a red carpet for corporations to extract the country's natural resources with minimum, if not zero, hindrance, said the head of Amnesty Indonesia. Simultaneously, the government is also fearful of increasing COVID cases due to protests, which will only increase the growing economic deficit, while also contributing to the nearly 12,000 deaths due to the virus in Indonesia. See, the protest is still in very early days, so it's actually unsure how the protest will affect the law, or if it will at all. There's quite a big history of Indonesia with protests and the government passing laws that were kind of uncalled for. So the government just continues to claim that this will only benefit the working class by creating more job opportunities and greater working flexibility. But that kind of seems like something that's already been said before. Unions, however, have been quick to respond by saying that wages would be cut and unprotected, while environmental protection has also been reduced within those amended laws. Yeah, power to the people, I say. What about the protesting, though? So media coverage has indicated that the protests have been quite turbulent and violent on both sides. A handful of protesters have been sent to the hospital with head injuries, but no deaths luckily so far. Many have taken to social media to highlight the protesters and police tactics, seen hurling rocks and other projectiles at police, launching Molotov cocktails and setting fire to tyres, furniture and bus stops. Meanwhile, police have been responding by using tear gas and some have witnessed them kicking and hurting protesters, which has led to over 180 injuries in protesters. It kind of seems like something similar that was happening in the US recently. You see, protesters have called to continue the fight until the law is removed or better adapted to the working class needs and demands. But at this moment, it seems that neither side is ready to negotiate nor listen. What a dire situation. It really is. Talking about dodgy laws, we can move on to the Cyprus Papers. So the Cyprus Papers are a batch of leaked documents obtained exclusively by Al Jazeera's investigative unit. 
containing more than 1,400 approved applications for the Cyprus Investment Scheme run by the Republic Cyprus, which basically allows applicants to obtain a passport. The countries with the highest number of applicants were Russia with 1,000 applicants, China with 500, and Ukraine with 100. But, like, why is the passport so important? The Cyprus passport allows its holder to travel freely to 147 countries. Between 2017 and 2019, nearly 2,500 passports were granted. The CIP program allows people from around the world to buy citizenship of the Republic of Cyprus for a minimum investment of 2.15 million euros, which is a hefty sum. People can become citizens of Cyprus and by extension citizens of the EU with the ability to live, travel and work across the 27 EU member states. Whoa, so you can buy citizenship? Yeah. But wait, so what is the actual problem with that? There's actually nothing illegal with acquiring new citizenship and several countries, including the Caribbean islands, offers a similar service. The problem with turning citizenship into a commodity, however, lies in the risk that people will abuse their newfound right to escape accountability from their countries of origin. In several cases, this investigation identified people who obtained their Cypriot passports shortly before criminal charges were actually filed against them. Several were living in exile, having been charged in absentia. For many, the ultra-high net worth individuals in the Cyprus papers, the 2.5 million required to buy the Cypriot passport is only considered a small sum of their total worth. So critics are saying some people should just not be allowed to get these passports. And the European Commission, as well as leading anti-corruption NGOs, Global Witness and Transparency International, have criticised the CIP and want to actually phase it out. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a citizenship just for the wealthy, which kind of weird. But so what are the critics saying about it? Yeah, so the program's inception in 2013, applicants had to prove they had a clean criminal record, although it was up to the applicant to actually establish themselves. In response to criticisms, changes to the rules were announced in February 2019. Applicants were banned from acquiring Cypriot citizenship if they had ever been under investigation, faced criminal charges, or had passed criminal convictions. Individuals who were placed under international sanction by the EU or third-party countries such as the United States, Russia, or Ukraine were also banned from acquiring a Cypriot passport. Finally... Elected or appointed government officials known as politically exposed people or PEPs were also prevented from acquiring citizenship. But these rules are not retrospective, so those who have already bought a passport could actually keep it. So you mentioned the PEP. What's the problem with these politically exposed people? Well, corruption experts claim that PEP, even where they have not been accused of any wrongdoing by virtue of the fact that they have access to public funds and decision-making processes in distributing those funds, are considered to be a much higher risk of corruption. In countries with a poor rule of law, getting rich can mean to control the provisions of public funds. This could be either as a public official who might receive bribes to be induced to award government contracts to privileged private sector partners or private sector actors who might inflate invoices and pocket the extra money from public funds. Mm, That makes sense. I see that now. So then what happens now? Well, the Cypriot government says that 
It has tightened its rules and that each applicant submitted under the CIP was in accordance with their regulations. Yet Cyprus has now promised to strip some naturalised Cypriots of their citizenship if they are guilty of any serious wrongdoing. And in July 2020, it passed a law allowing this to actually happen. Cyprus says as an EU member state, it will function with absolute transparency. So it'll be really interesting to see if that actually happens. I probably can't count on my fingers how many times countries have said that they'll work with absolute transparency. But I guess we can hope. Yeah, and just never do. I think you're totally right. I guess we'll see what (laughs) what happens. We shall. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our bi-monthly news wrap-up. And make sure to check in next week for our upcoming Trailblazer episode and in-depth series.